So, since my arrival in July, friends, we have journeyed together through the scriptures designated by the Revised Common Lectionary. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that term, it is an online tool that schedules out different weekly scripture readings that coincide with the church calendar. It's a wonderful tool and can be accessed by anyone of any denomination, but there are different lectionaries or different tracks based on your denomination. There's an Anglican track for our Episcopal friends, a Catholic track for our Catholic friends, and there's a United Methodist track for us. The only differences between our track and others is that ours omits the special readings for the High Holy Days and special midweek festivals that are not part of our faith tradition as Methodists. But I've got a confession to make. Since July, I have been mainly using the Anglican track to prepare for our Wednesday night services. I know, we are Methodists, I am well aware, but in seminary, I had mostly Episcopalian friends who wrote me into a Bible study, much like our read, pray, love Bible studies that take place on Thursdays primarily, I believe, and Mondays here, and that we together read through the Revised Common Lectionary. So it has been part of my own faith practice to focus mainly on the Anglican track of scripture readings set apart by the lectionary. Um, But by the time I realized my mistake in picking the lectionary readings for tonight, I realized that it was the lectionary's readings not for Sunday coming up, but for today, the Anglican High Holy Day of the Festival of the Holy Cross. But by the time I caught my mistake, I was already a little bit far down the rabbit hole in preparing for tonight. Uh, So though these readings are, wouldn't be what we would traditionally read together tonight, I still believe that there is some fruit to be found within them. There's a beautiful history of this celebration that dates all the way back to the year 335. So if you're curious about it and want to know more about that history, come see me after. I can give you some websites and some books that you might find interesting. Uh, But in short, our friends in both the Episcopalian traditions and the Catholic tradition set aside time on this day to gather together with their church family and remember Christ's self-offering on the cross for our salvation, or that Christ was lifted high upon the cross that he might draw the whole world into himself, just like I read a few moments ago in our prayer. So tonight, we are hearkening back to those Anglican roots and pondering together the question, what might we as Methodists learn from this practice? What might Christ be inviting us into as we remember this, his self-sacrificial moment for ourselves? So be, to begin answering this question this evening, we turn to our gospel text that will be familiar to many of us in this room. But it also connects us to that strange story that Jay read to us just moments ago from Numbers. 
And as our typical practice, I've been inviting us into a different way of hearing Scripture, where I ask you to pay attention to where the Holy Spirit might be drawing your attention within the Scripture. What's sparking your mind? What are you focusing on as I read the words? And after I read the text, I'll be inviting you to lift those moments aloud together. Again, if you're joining us online, please put them in the comment section so Journey can share with us as well. So get comfy, close your eyes if you need to, and listen to where the Spirit is leading you in these words from John chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. My friends, this is the word of God given to us as the children of God, and we all say together, thanks be to God. All right, friends, what word or phrase jumped out to you as I read that passage? Yes, Jill. Yep. Amen. So for those who couldn't hear Jill in the back, she brought us back to the Numbers passage and said, even though the Israelites were whiny and lots of other words she didn't feel comfortable saying aloud, uh, God still loved them. And that was reiterated in our gospel text, uh, that for God so loved the world. Thank you, Jill, for bringing that forward. So when I was in the fifth grade, I picked up my very first volleyball. And for the next seven years of my life, volleyball was it for me. It was every single moment of my life. In the fall, I played school ball. In the spring, I played on a travel club team. In the summer, I played in the sand, beach volleyball, and uh, conditioned to prepare for my school season. Every waking moment for me was volleyball. I loved every minute of it. And through the course of that time playing, I was in every position under the sun. But in high school, I found my home as a setter, which is sort of like the quarterback of a volleyball team, if you are really familiar with football and not quite volleyball. They're the ones that make uh, or set up the off, uh, 
the hitters to make the good plays that get us the points. So they are the ones sort of making plays happen. By my sophomore year, I was playing at the varsity level, mastering the complicated jump set where you're literally jumping in the air while setting the ball. I was eating, sleeping, and breathing all things volleyball with the hope of playing at the collegiate level one day. Actually, here at the University of Florida, in fact, was my dream. But I had a bad habit of getting too caught up in my own head. If I had a bad day at school or at home, it would show in my performance on court. I have lost count of the times that my coaches had to pull me aside and reorient me, saying, sometimes even in frustration, go back to the basics. You cannot perform at this level without having mastered those concepts. Go back to the basics. And you know, as I was reading our gospel text this evening, that's a little bit of what I hear Jesus is saying. In this part of our gospel text, it, Jesus was in the middle of a conversation with Nicodemus. But if you go forward just a few verses, we learn that Nicodemus was a leader of the Jews. And this man had come to Jesus in the dark of the night, not with an air of accusation like so many other leaders and Pharisees have spoken to Jesus with. Instead, Nicodemus approached Jesus with a longing to understand and asking the question, how can one be born of the Spirit? And Jesus replies to Nicodemus in his usual lofty way uh, with a question turning the question back to Nicodemus, saying, How are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you cannot understand these things? In other words, Jesus seemed to be asking, How can you perform at this level? How can you lead others in faith without having mastered the basics? So Jesus brings Nicodemus back through the basics of faith and reminds him of a story that Nicodemus would have remembered from childhood, a story maybe told around a campfire, in the synagogue's version of a Sunday school class, or at his mother's feet at the dinner table, getting ready for bed. It was a story of old, a story told and told time and time again. Specifically, he points to the story that we just read of Moses making a snake and raising it up as a symbol to remind the people of Israel of God's power and of God's mercy in the wilderness, even when they were complaining. And then he said, that's me too. I too, will be the conduit of God's power and mercy, not just to you and the Jews, but to all people. I will be raised so that for ages to come, I will be a symbol, a reminder to all that God so loved the world. 
Go back to the basics, Jesus tells Nicodemus. Go back to the basics. God might be saying to us tonight. Go back to the basics. That seems like an easy task, doesn't it? We remember the old Sunday school stories, the famous verse that even if you've only spent five minutes in a church, you almost learn by osmosis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We memorize that as children and we say it in our sleep. But how many of us have spent time actually listening to what God is trying to tell us in those words. Parsing out the depths of that statement and allowing it to seep into our hearts. In this world in which we live, there are crosses everywhere. In churches, we see one right up there, dangling around necks, even inked on the skin as tattoo. I am guilty. I have a cross tattoo. The cross seems to have become a fashion statement, something to be worn or shown off. But how many of us have taken a moment to stop and remember what the cross signifies for us? Does the cross give us pause or has it become so commonplace that we don't even notice its presence? When we see it, do we remember its significance, its invitation, or have we forgotten? Have we forgotten? Sadly, speaking only for myself in this moment, I know in the depths of my soul that I have, I am guilty of that. I know that in some sense, I have forgotten the full depth of what the cross should remind me of. Sure, I know and I fully believe in my head that Christ gave himself for me and for us. But more often than not, that belief is not translated completely in here. My head knows, but my heart needs to catch up. To use Wesley's language, my heart sometimes is not strangely warmed as often as I would hope for. So tonight, I wonder if I'm not the only one who feels this way in this room. I think maybe we all feel this way from time to time, where we see something as significant as the cross and we brush it off not feeling the full weight of its meaning simply because we see it so dang often. That is the reason why I appreciate the Anglican practice of setting aside an entire night to celebrate the cross. Because for those who participate, this festival reorients and reminds them of the full weight and the full significance of what God has done for us through Christ's death and resurrection. It gives room and space for the Holy Spirit to revive a piece of spirituality that might have been lost or muted over the course of the year. 
pushed aside by busyness or the dailiness, the repetitiveness of our lives. But we're not Anglicans anymore. Thank you, John Wesley. We are Methodist, and yet I still believe that we can learn and glean something from this practice of setting aside time to reorient ourselves and remind ourselves of exactly who we are and who God is to us and for us. If you lift this practice of honoring and remembering the Holy Cross, specifically Christ's sacrifice, out of the worship context, What does it begin to look like? Y'all, this is not a rhetorical question, so if you have an answer, please lift it up. When you lift this practice of celebrating the Holy Cross out of the worship context and setting aside time, what does that start to look like? Any guesses? Hmm? Practice, yes. There's another P word. Prayer. Prayer, yes. When you lift this practice of setting aside time to reorient yourself back to who God is for you, that sounds an awful lot like prayer. Talk about getting back to the basics. While prayer might be one of the most foundational elements of Christian life. It's equally one of the hardest, right? I know I struggle with prayer. It's one of the most challenging and most difficult parts of my own personal journey of faith. I'm someone who deeply struggles with dedicating time to prayer. You all have seen my life. (laughs) I don't even have a house yet. Uh, I'm not someone who can simply just close their eyes, sit still, and pray. That's not who I am. My mind never seems to shut off. So I constantly catch myself wandering down the rabbit hole of thought, never actually spending time in concerted prayer. I'm always chasing something else, not focusing on the one who really matters. So what I admire about this Anglican practice of the festival of the Holy Cross is that it is time spent focusing on one aspect of our faith. Everything in a Holy Cross worship service brings our awareness back to the symbol of the cross and what that symbol invites us to remember. In the summer of 2015, I discovered a new, or maybe I should say I recovered, an ancient prayer practice that draws our attention to something similar. I was on my way to Cuba with my campus ministry when we stayed the night at a pastor friend's house down in South Florida. And after dinner, we were all gathered around the dinner table just talking, and I noticed an image on the wall. In fact, it wasn't really an image. It was more like this elaborate piece of artwork that really stuck out in 3D 
Uh, it was wood, and it had this beautiful painting on it of Jesus. And so I asked our host what that was, and she graciously shared that it was part of her spiritual practice, that she actually made that piece of artwork. It's part of her daily prayer and meditation. It's a prayer practice that has become or had become popular back in the Byzantine Empire so, so long ago. Usually, these images of art are pictures of Jesus or the Trinity or some Christian element that is captured on wood. They have come to be called icons because that picture reminds us of something much greater. It's a representation of something larger. For some, studying Christian icons is a way to connect with God in a more personal way. They have been called windows to heaven or doorways to the sacred. So in preparation for our time together this evening, I called an old co-worker from my time at Memorial United Methodist Church in Fernandina Beach. And while I was there on staff as the youth director, she was and still is the worship arts coordinator or director. Uh, and at the time, she was working on her doctoral dissertation on Christian iconography and how icons can help us better understand something called the incarnation, which is Christ coming to earth in human form. God made flesh. And so I called her knowing that God was leading me to talk a little bit about iconography tonight. So I picked her brain and asking what she has learned and how she has experienced uh, worship with icons or praying with icons. And she said this, it's a mystery but somehow, when I spend time focusing on a particular icon, my attention is brought to a new aspect of the art that enhances my understanding of who Christ is. It's in those moments that I am empowered to ask better questions and see myself in the icon. It's almost as if Christ is meeting me in my pondering. A couple of things stood out to me in her response. First, that this image enhances her understanding of Christ. And the second is that she felt that in her moments of focus, that Christ met her there. That, to me, sounds like prayer. Time spent with the Holy One, Christ meeting us where we are. This kind of prayer is something that's called contemplative prayer. We often feel that contemplative prayer is something that we have to do in utter silence, where we have to quiet our minds so much so that there's nothing going on upstairs, and we're waiting on God to give us some image. And friends, for me, that just doesn't work. That's not the way I connect to the holy. 
So for me, contemplative prayer looks something like praying with icons, focusing my attention on a picture where I can gaze upon it, ask questions. I see Jesus hanging, and I can focus on who Jesus is for me. It centers my mind on the thing that really matters. In a prayer book that I use almost daily entitled Common Prayer, A Liturgy for Ordinary Radicals, it says that prayer is about tending to the lines that anchor us to Christ. Let me say that again. Prayer is about tending to the lines that anchor us in and to Christ. So St. Francis of Assisi is the father of contemplative prayer. He was a 13th century monk and theologian who kind of started this trend. And he would often use this cross right here. It's called the San Damiano Cross. And this cross would anchor himself and focus his thought and prayer on Christ's love. He was able to quiet the world around him and focus on the one thing, the one thing that truly matters, Christ's love. It was just like the song that we began our time in worship with. If you were not here just yet, it went a little something like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Join me if you know it. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. In the light of his glory and grace. Y'all, that's prayer. That is prayer too. And maybe this is the invitation for us Methodists embedded and rooted in the Anglican tradition, this festival of Holy Cross. The invitation to pray in a way that we might never have before. An invitation to pray using an icon. Something to focus our mind, and ponder the things that anchor our hearts to Jesus, to the cross, to God's love for us. And in doing so, we trust that in our pondering, in our questioning, in our focusing, there, Christ will be also. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we all say together, Amen. Amen.